I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the so hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Eurotrip podcast. Now, you may have noticed every now and then we give you a little treat. We give you a little special episode. We, we did so before Christmas and today we bring you, I reckon, our most special episode to date. Would you agree? That is a bold claim, but I'm happy to get on board with it because we've got two big interviews coming your way today with two people who you don't really hear from that often. One of them is incredibly important in the organisation of this year's Eurovision Song Contest taking place in Rotterdam this May. And another one is very crucial in all of the content you see over on Eurovision's website, eurovision.tv, and of course, their YouTube channel. That's right. So we are taking you behind the scenes of Eurovision today. I hope you enjoy Remember, anything you want to say, any comments you have on the episode, you can tweet us. We're at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also email us, hello at EurotripPodcast.com. I cannot express how much joy both me and James get from hearing from you and hearing your thoughts on the episode. So please do get in touch with us and let us know what you think. In a little while, we will hear from the man that James mentioned there, who is responsible for the organisation of Eurovision 2021, Seat Sabaka. He doesn't give many interviews, so it was fantastic to be able to sit down with him for half an hour or so and find out where we are at with the organisation of this year's Eurovision Song Contest. But first, James, over to you. Thank you very much, Rob. Yes, indeed. First of all, before we hear from Sita himself, I was very lucky enough to speak to Stein Smulders last week. Now, he is 
a name you may not recognize, but you will have a voice you will recognize almost immediately because part of his role as the project lead for Eurovision.tv and Eurovision's YouTube channel is to be the voiceover for all those videos you see online. Now, it was a pleasure to chat to him to find out all the things that he does in his role. Looking ahead to the content that he's got planned, for Eurovision 2021 and of course the big year that was 2020 where the contest of course didn't take place but him and his team had to organise so much more content to keep us Eurovision fans entertained. But first of all I started off by asking him where his love for Eurovision first began. This is the Euro trip. As with a lot of people I guess uh, I grew up with the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, my parents let me watch it I think from when I was five or six years old back in the 90s. And um, that was the one night in the year as a kid that I could stay up very, very late. Um, so I, I really loved that. And um, uh, I've always been interested in it. And even uh, when I grew older, my brothers got a bit tired of the Eurovision Song Contest, but I didn't. And then I started following it more properly, I think, from uh, 2008, 2009. Um, and that's when I got uh, really hooked. Uh, and I thought at some point, okay, I want to work for this project. So let's send an email. And things happened quite quickly after that. So that's it then. So you sent an email, you just said there, and then somehow you managed to, to get involved. So what was the first involvement you had working for Eurovision or working at a contest? Um, so in, in, in 2010, I remember sitting down with my, with my dad watching the show uh, from Oslo. The winner of the Eurovision Song Contest 2010 is Germany! Uh, and I told him it would be cool if I could work with it uh, next year. Uh, and the next year it, it, uh, it turned out it was in Dusseldorf. Uh, and Dusseldorf was um, well, about 100 kilometers from, my, from, from the home of my parents. So it was really nice that it was that close by and I really thought, okay, this is, this is the chance, you know, I should, I should write an email and then and then I did because I just uh, graduated my studies as a, as a director. Um, and I think, I think a couple of weeks later, uh, I, I received an email back saying, OK, we're looking for a third uh, video editor. Do you want to join our, our Eurovision.tv team? And I said, yeah, sure. And then things got rolling. So most people listening will recognize the voice, I imagine, from naturally the Eurovision YouTube channel. But you mentioned there, that isn't how you first started. So you were working behind the scenes originally? Yes, uh, that's, that's true. Um, I started as a, as a cameraman, basically, a cameraman and an editor. Um, I started doing that from 2011 in Dusseldorf, uh, and that was on a freelance basis. And next to that, I worked for a commercial broadcasters here in the Netherlands. And um, at some point after doing that for a couple of years, um, I got asked to be the YouTube channel manager uh, for the Eurovision Song Contest. And it happened to be that, you know, there was not, there, there wasn't a voiceover. So what we did is, is we tried out, we did some test recordings uh, and it turned out quite fine. And that's, that's how I was both the YouTube channel manager, but also the voiceover of Eurovision and Junior. So before that, when, when you said uh, you were working sort of on a freelance basis, working for different broadcasters and stuff like that, you must have been, you know, behind the scenes doing stuff and seeing stuff that us fans don't necessarily see. And I guess you do quite a lot of that now. So what was it like to have been a fan and to then transition into this different role where you get to see all sorts of different things? I didn't really 
feel like I was, you know, getting more closer to the artist or or anything like it. Because if you have if you've been at the Eurovision Song Contest, you know that most of the artists are really, really uh, outgoing and open about everything they do. Also with the with the fan community, and it's it's not 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 really a difference with uh, what happens in the delegation bubble, for example. Uh, people are just really open and friendly and they're happy to show us their preparation for the Eurovision Song Contest. And that's really nice. So when you took over the role at uh, the as the manager of the Eurovision YouTube channel, as we say, we've mentioned that you do the voiceover, but there is so much more to it than that. You are not just the guy who voices it. You, you are doing a lot more behind the scenes for it, aren't you? Absolutely. Uh, currently, I'm no longer the YouTube channel manager. Um, I now lead the project from our uh, from our company, uh, which means that I am responsible for everything that happens on the YouTube channel, but also on Eurovision.tv. Um, so I lead my team, which is a group of amazing people from all over Europe. And we currently all work at home, which is a bit sad, but... Um, it's quite nice to see that when, um, for example, yesterday we were covering the, uh, the little 100 days to Eurovision event that uh, we have people working uh, all the way up in north of Sweden uh, and London and in the Netherlands at the same time. Um, so that's what I currently do is to lead that team and to create the, the strategy and the plans for, for, the, uh, for the website and for the YouTube channel. 2020 then must have been a, a pretty big year then because I mean it, it goes without saying that of course we know what happened with Eurovision being cancelled so then there was a lot of other things that had to sort of tide people over uh, because clearly it's, it's been a very difficult job to keep fans entertained throughout this almost two-year period without a contest so what was it like to try and make sure there was enough content there to keep people entertained? As you might remember yourself and fans will remember as well is is um i was i was at the final of melody festival in sweden in march apart from you know properly washing your hands and 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 making sure you're cleaned and, and no longer shaking hands Everything was as normal. There were 50,000 people in that venue and um, it was an amazing show. And um, the next day uh, I flew back to Amsterdam uh, because we had the head of delegation meeting in, uh, in Rotterdam then. And all of a sudden my plane was very empty. And I thought, okay, this is, this is strange. You know, I, did, I didn't know what, but I thought, I, I felt that something special was going on. And, uh, but then at the head of delegation meeting, I still felt that people were still quite you know positive and thinking okay this eurovision is going to happen let's go for it uh, but as the days turned so quickly and the, then in march it just turned more clear that it wasn't possible and of course me and uh, and 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 my colleagues we were all very devastated but at the same time after after the cancellation was announced we thought okay we have to do something to keep not only the spirit of the of the fans up but also the spirits for ourselves up i never really had the feeling that we were like okay eurovision is cancelled let's stop working and let's have a holiday for five months or something like that um so quite quickly we came up with the idea of eurovision home concerts 
And it was amazing to see how many of the artists actually felt the same way of, of, of wanting to do something in this, in this pandemic and not just sit at home uh, on the couch, but contribute something and, and entertain people during. So I, I thought that was really, really, really beautiful and great. So at least March, April and May, we got through quite nicely, I think. I hope that people enjoyed it. And then over summer, we've just been working onwards to, you know, how to how to do this, um, how to still make it happen for the Junior Eurovision Song Contest and now for Eurovision as well. There was two other major projects that kept people entertained. One of them was Eurovision again, of course. Uh, we'll come on to that in a second. Um, but then the Eurovision Song Celebration that sort of took the place of the original contest. Uh, how was it to try and plan something like that to try and ensure that again on these special days that fans look forward to there was going to be something there in place to, to a- again keep them entertained i think we all knew that it was impossible to replace the semi-finals in, in that way um this, the decision was of course taken to to not have a eurovision song contest and therefore we also didn't want to do anything with a with a result or anything like that. But we still wanted to entertain people. And most importantly, we felt that artists and their teams, they had put so much time into their acts and their songs that we wanted to you know, give them the biggest platform that we could give at that time online. Um, and that's what we try to do. At some point we were working uh, to three shows at the same time so we're still doing the home concerts and then the song celebration and we're obviously also preparing with the host broadcaster for Europe Shine a Light. Um, It took us many days uh, and at some point also many nights (laughs) Um, but I was really happy that we got there in the end and the reception was just overwhelming. I'm sure it was it must be quite a you know, a pleasing moment to see fans reacting in, in such a way, especially as well for Eurovision again. Um, for people who don't know, although I can't imagine there's many who don't, it was this, you know, simulcast of, the, of, a, of, a, con- of a contest on a Saturday night and then everybody around the world could watch. Uh, it was organised by fans originally, but then you guys at Eurovision uh, jumped on it and thought, you know, let's make this as big as we can. Did you ever think it could be as big as it ever was? I didn't know what to expect, um, but I felt that there was, and we felt together with, the, with, with, our, with our colleagues at the EBU as well, we felt that there was, uh, we saw the first Eurovision again, all of a sudden, I, I, I remember I looked at my phone and I all, all of a sudden I saw a peak in traffic on the, I think it was Eurovision 2013 show. So we saw that, okay, something's going on there. So I looked on Twitter and I saw uh, loads of the uh, people I know, but also friends and, and, and fans of the contest, they, they started to, to use that hashtag Eurovision again. And I thought, okay, that's really cool that all these people are joining in and just randomly looked at the Eurovision 2013. And it was not a little amount of people. You know, you're talking about five or 6,000 people watching simultaneously back then out of something that started from a tweet from Rob Holly. So then the EBU came with the idea, okay, could, can we join this concept? What can we do for them? Um, and we have an amazing archive, um, which we've gathered together with all the broadcasters. And then we thought, okay, let's use it. There were a couple of shows from uh, after 2004, for which the EBU has the, the rights for, which weren't published yet. So we started with the 2009 show. And I think it was watched by over 150,000 people. <laughs> And then it and then it properly kicked off. Yeah. 
And how special was it that you managed to, I was going to use the word persuade, but I, I guess it mightn't have taken much persuasion from the other broadcasters before 2004 to say, here you go, you can, you can use our footage. Um, it was it was the EBU who who got in contact with the broadcasters for these uh, for these shows. But what what we've noticed is that they they really the broadcasters as well. Everybody felt this this need of of, of doing whatever you can to keep the Eurovision spirit alive. So when the first ones came, and I think it was RTE or BBC that we did the first one with. They were really keen on doing it, uh, and then other broadcasters joined in, and I'm, I'm, I'm to this day really, really grateful for them uh, to to give the permission to uh, to do these shows. Um, I think, personally, I think the most special one was the 1974 one, because I don't think, or not, not, not that I know of at least, is that there was a live stream of a show that took play, place so many years ago that it got so many viewers at that point. Madame and Monsieur, Katie Boyle. Good evening, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the 19th Eurovision Song Contest, coming to you from the Dome in Brighton. It was so, so special. That was going to be my next question. It was going to be which one was, you know, your favourite one. But is that your standout memory from it then? I can't imagine you would have enjoyed working the Saturday night, but surely, you know, it comes together and you think, you know, this is a fantastic event for, for all these fans. Um, for me, the there was not too much work for me to do on the Saturday night. Uh, it's, it's just making sure that the stream uh, keeps running steadily, but there's not that much that can go wrong. So I could also just enjoy the shows and, and join the, the tweet along, so to say. So, so on Saturdays, it was, it was mostly, that was the, the fun part of it. Um, even though uh, preparing these shows was also uh, a really, really fun experience to, um, sometimes we really had to combine um, broadcasts from five different broadcasters together to make it clean, uh, the audio, but also to get the best possible quality. I was going to say, I remember one of these shows, maybe you remember exactly which one it was, where you've just sort of mentioned it there, where it wasn't just one piece of film that you had to use. You had to actually, you know, cut bits from different broadcasts, get different sound. So there was actually effort from your end to, to make it look and sound good. Absolutely. Yeah, a couple of times we really had some work and sometimes it could take days. I remember the 1988 contest. Uh, there were some audio problems in the uh, original broadcast, or at least as it looks like now. I mean, I was three months old <laughs> during the 1988 contest, so I don't really know. But uh, as it looks like in our archive, it seems that there were some uh, technical problems with the audio there. But what we found out is what was that one audio person in uh, the Netherlands actually during the show managed to fix it on their end. Um, and so we, we collected that audio file, connected it to the, to the remaining video from the broadcast and then kind of mixed it together. Uh, that one took about three days to, to prepare. 
I think it's a big thank you from the fans then for, for all the effort you and the rest of the team put in because that sort of saved everybody's lockdown really looking forward to those Saturday nights. Uh, do you think it's going to come back at some point? I appreciate we're in the run up to Eurovision 2021 now, but over the, the summer, do you think we're going to see it back? Because I think most fans would love to see it return. <laughs> it, if, I mean, it's not up to me entirely, but uh, I think it should come back. Uh, I had a lot of fun um, uh, working on it, but also watching it. I, I, I really appreciate that uh, everybody watching uh, enjoyed it that much. Um, so I think I think uh, it will come back. Uh, and I think uh, there's still a lot of shows uh, to be seen. Um, so let's see when we start again. But first, uh, of course, there's uh, national finals of the season still going on. Absolutely. And then after national final season, we're then in the final stretch towards Eurovision 2021. And we all know it's going to look a little bit differently to what we would expect it to be. We've kind of had a bit of a, a test run about how it could look with junior Eurovision. So how how are you sort of approaching Rotterdam this year? Have you Are you t- sort of taking some experience from junior Eurovision last year to, to try and you know get a good enough polished product compared to what we would normally see? I think I think uh, what we what we are doing is very similar to what the host broadcaster is doing. So we're working in multiple scenarios, in which we know okay if it's this scenario, then we will work with this planning and schedule for 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 the website and for YouTube. Um, but we definitely learned something some things from from Junior Eurovision. Um, first of all, what we tried there is to make as much content as we would usually do. Um, But this requires, of course, a lot of help from the broadcasters in this case, because at Junior Eurovision, no broadcasters or some broadcasters came to Poland, but most of them recorded from home. So that means that you have to ask a broadcaster, okay, can you record, for example, backstage material for for us? Um, So you can kind of see a similar setup in in Eurovision. I think the main goal is to... uh, still be able to show the things that we usually show. For example, what, what, what you usually see with first rehearsals is that people really find that interest in like, oh, what is it going to look like? Um, what are they going to wear? Um, and, and then sometimes an endless discussion on, on, on whether that's good or not, but that's what you find out in the final when you get the results, of course. Um, but this kind of uh, you know, buzz we still want to create, um, and, that, and that's what we'll definitely do. Absolutely. Um, we were just talking there about what sort of plans you're making for, for the next couple of months before Eurovision 2021. Is there anything you can tell us that we can look forward to on Eurovision.tv or on the Eurovision YouTube channel? Uh, are we going to get home concerts again? Is there anything you can tell us? Give us a little tease about what's coming up. We're still working on some of the formats. Um, absolutely. Um, I, I cannot tell too much yet apart from the fact what I said earlier, that we want to do as many things that, that, that you're usually used to see from us in one way or another. But we're, we're definitely thinking about something bigger as well, like we did last year with the home concerts. But it's, it is, of course, also fun to think of something new, something that we hadn't done before. And that is what, what we're currently looking for. A couple more questions for you then. Um, when do you think we're going to get an artist who is going to knock a little big off the top spot of the most viewed uh, video on there because they've just taken it by storm haven't they the the, the growth of little big's music video was 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 really something spectacular um but i said the same about uh, about netta's toy a couple of years back 
Uh, and I thought, okay, it's going to take a few years to, to, to go over that. And it only took two. So uh, you never really know. Uh, and what you now see, for example, with, uh, with Duncan Lawrence is that, um, you know, of course, it was a very popular song in the Netherlands and in the countries around it. And during his victory, of course, a bit around Europe. But I think currently uh, there's a TikTok trend around the Duncan Lawrence Arcade due to which he has just entered multiple charts. I think he's in the top 100 worldwide and he has entered the, the top 40 in, uh, in the UK again. So, so that shows that anything, anything is possible um, with these songs. And I think the Eurovision Song Contest is a great boost for, for some of these art- artists. One last question from me. Uh, it's a question we ask everybody who comes to speak to us on the podcast. What is your second favorite Eurovision song of all time? This is, in general, a good question. I must say, I think one of the ones that I have most memory of from being a kid is uh, Imani's Where Are You? Uh, That song has always stuck in my head from when I was 10 years old. So that one is definitely, uh, definitely a good call. Whether it's my favorite, maybe it is my second favorite. (laughs) (laughs) And I love uh, Lane Moya from uh, Zelkia Joksimovic. This is the Euro Trip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. So that was my conversation with Stein Smulders. Uh, of course, us finishing, as we always do, by asking him what his second favourite Eurovision song is of all time. Now, he was really on the spot with that one because, of course, that is a question he asks all the time to all the artists taking part in the Eurovision Song Contest. But he had a bit of a think and he came up with two because it was too indecisive. Although two great ones, don't get me wrong. They were really, really good choices. And two we've never heard before as well because normally they just go euphoria or fairy tale. But thanks to him and his encyclopedic knowledge, he had two blinders to pick from. Uh, I would like to tell you, listeners, unfortunately, you won't hear me in a little while ask uh, Sitsabaka for his second favourite Eurovision song. Uh, Not because I forgot, but just because I feel like, you know what, he's got more important things to tell us about the 2021 contest than his second favourite Eurovision song. But that's right, it is now time for our chat, or my chat rather, with the executive producer, one of two executive producers of Eurovision 2021. Uh, it was fantastic to be able to sit down with Sitsabaka for around half an hour. We hear from him every now and again where he gives us some updates about the 2021 contest. So that was what I tried to get out of him during this interview. We find out all sorts about what we've got to expect in May. Sitsa himself started with this very enjoyable introduction. As Jono Lassandra always said, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. I want to start with a big landmark, which we celebrated last week, of course, which was 100 days to Eurovision. For yourself and your team, who have been working on this project for so long now, you know, you've been working on on two contests effectively. Just how important is it for you and your team to to have reached that point? Well, thanks for your question and, and thanks for having me. Um, uh, the, the 100 days landmark is obviously a symbolic one and we've had many different deadlines and, and moments to sort of live up to. Um, but it's good to sort of symbolically get started to have that countdown clock in, uh, in Rotterdam and see the days ticking away. 
um it was uh, it, it, it was a bit of a challenging event because it was uh, uh well into freezing temperatures and and as you may be aware we we also have a lockdown here in the netherlands but uh, nevertheless it was good to uh, to get it going absolutely I mean, the other the other big thing that we we heard a couple of weeks ago of course and i wanted to ask you about it as as early as possible of course understandably uh, scenario a is is off the table which completely makes sense and i think Everybody who is a fan of the contest in their hearts knew that that would probably be the case. Can you talk to us about where we're at now? I know we're we're not going to hear anything more about fans or, or anything like that until April and close to the contest. But can you talk to us a little bit about sort of where we are at as we speak at the moment? Yeah, indeed. It was um, obviously disappointing for us and, and probably for many fans as well to to come to the realization that a, a, a normal song contest, to the extent that it's ever normal, because it, it hardly ever is, um, but but to, to not have that scenario A on the table anymore. Obviously, we hoped last year when we committed to hosting in 2021 that things would be back to normal, more or less. And, uh, and, and that's unfortunately not the case. Thankfully, we were, we were prepared by having uh, three more scenarios ranging from uh, uh, sort of a, a social distancing Eurovision Song Contest to remote song contest with the contestants performing from their home studios uh, up to a, to a lockdown song contest, uh, which if you look at the circumstances today is is a wise thing to have on the table. At the same time, we are uh, we are carefully optimistic about the, the weeks and months to come when it comes to um, uh, obviously... Um, uh, getting rid of the virus, which will take time, um, but hopefully vaccination will uh, will speed up in the weeks and months to come. Um, the uh, the seasonal influence uh, we hope will make a difference, just like it did last year, uh, and we hope that this will um, this will make it possible for us to do a song contest under scenario B. That's what we're heading for. That's what all our energy goes into right now, and we're just very happy that that we. Uh, uh, that we get a lot of uh, support from the participating broadcasters, from the delegations, from the artists that have already been chosen. And, uh, and we're happy that we managed to, to push that uh, decision moment about audience in the venue all the way up to uh, mid-April. Were you having to work, presumably, with a number of different partners to get, to get that audience decision pushed back as far as possible? Because... There are so many people involved, so many people involved in setting up the Ahoy, for example. Were you pleased to be able to agree with them? Actually, we can put this decision off for as long as possible. Yeah, lots of credits, actually, to the city of Rotterdam that managed to keep all their re resources in terms of security available uh, all the way up to mid-April. Uh, at the same time, you'd be surprised how challenging uh, ticketing at the song contest is behind the scenes. Uh, I, I never fully grasped the complexity of ticketing all the way up to, uh, to, to being in this role myself. And, and as most of you know, I've been involved with the contest for many, many years. Um, but this is complicated as well. And, and the, uh, our, our ticketing manager and her team managed to, uh, to, to, to remain flexible all the way up to the, to the last moment. But of course, it was a sad moment for us to, to inform all those people that have tickets uh, that we were going to reimburse those uh, because uh, we know how long the Dutch fans have been waiting for a contest here in the Netherlands and we know how much uh, fans 
look forward to the next song contest after a year of absence. You, you talk about the fans there and the best case scenario is that we will have a, a socially distanced audience in the in the Ahoy. Are we going to get a, a slightly, well, of course, we're going to get a unique Eurovision this year, but is it going to be unique in a sense that actually the, the crowd is pretty much 100% made up of, of Dutch fans, if there is a crowd? Well, that is, of course, a possibility. Uh, uh, ideally, in, in, uh, if, if, we, uh, if we can decide now, it would be an audience with, uh, with fans from all uh, participating countries and beyond, because that's what, what gives that incredible flavor to, uh, to the song contest, to, to the shows. Um, but we also have to be realistic about uh, travel restrictions and obviously uh, the, 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 the challenges for fans to, to come to Rotterdam at short notice. Uh, although we are confident that if we uh, hopefully will be able to take a positive decision mid-April uh, mid that uh, fans will flock to Rotterdam in, in great numbers from, uh, from all corners of Europe. Um, so yeah, that, that is something we, um, we hope will be, uh, uh, will be possible. Um, and uh, I'm sure that if we end up in a situation where we only have Dutch fans, uh, they, will be, uh, uh, they, will, they will radiate the excitement uh, uh, on behalf of all fans from across Europe. How much optimism have you got from something which I saw you actually tweeting yesterday, which was the fact that we are now seeing certain test events taking place in, in the Netherlands, which presumably is a great thing for you in your position to see happening and gives you a vision into what Eurovision 2021 could be? Oh, absolutely. Uh, last year in summer, uh, we started to, together with a couple of other organizations, the Alliance for Event Builders. A, uh, an informal collaboration between event organizers uh, to basically uh, support each other uh, and work with the authorities to make events at a larger scale possible again. And the testing events, the so-called field labs, uh, are a very important element there. Uh, yesterday, we saw the first test event, which was a, a conference with 500 people basically acting as normal. Um, and yesterday it was also confirmed that the, uh, the next test events uh, can take place as well in March. Uh, two festivals with, uh, with 1,500 people in attendance. That's obviously good news as well. It will take some time to get those results, but uh, we are positive that those results will come in before we have to take a decision about audience. Now, you've mentioned it already. I, I wanted to ask you about your prior experience, of course, working on the Eurovision Song Contest, also on the Junior Eurovision Song Contest. Can you just talk us through your, your history with, with Eurovision? Because I know a lot, of, a lot of our fans actually might not know that you have such a long history with, with, with something that we all love so much anyway. Start to feel old when you ask me the question. <laughs> uh, no, I, I started uh, uh, when I was uh, 16, um, uh, essentially on a, a, a fan community website, uh, which is still around. It's ESC today. It's, uh, it's great to see they're still, uh, they're still going strong. Um, and, uh, and I attended my first song contest in 2003 in Riga. Hello, Europe! Bonsoir, Lyon! You are more than welcome to Latvia and the Eurovision Song Contest 2003. Bienvenue à Lettonie et concours Eurovision de la chanson 2003. I went to every 
contest since. In, uh, in uh, 2006, shortly after the contest in Athens, I was asked by the EBU to, uh, to join as, uh, as, as project leader for online, uh, set up uh, uh, Eurovision.tv. And that was an exciting time because it was the, you know, the, 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 the rise of social media. YouTube just came about uh, two years later. I became uh, head of communications for the song contest. And in 2011, uh, became event supervisor, uh, basically the right hand to uh, to Yonal Asand, and I was also given the opportunity to uh, to oversee the Junior Eurovision Song Contest for two years. I did that until 2016, then took a step back from the uh, from the Eurovision community, and uh, until the phone rang uh, uh, in uh, in 2019 when the Netherlands won, and NPO asked me if I wanted to uh, join the team. How have you seen the contest change from your various roles? You know, the Eurovision that we saw in 2003 is in many ways unrecognisable to the Eurovision that we saw in 2019, for example, or we'll see in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's changed a lot. Um, uh, I think when it, what it comes down to in the end is, is music. It's the songs, it's the artists, it's their professionalism. Uh, because you can you can throw an amazing show with a lot of sort of technical spectacle, but it comes down to to the music, and uh, I think the the contest has has grown a lot in terms of uh, credibility. Uh, I think platforms like YouTube help a lot because they they sort of show the popularity of of uh, of songs and give confidence to to the music industry that. That participating in the song contest is a sort of a worthwhile investment, uh, but obviously the commitment from subsequent host broadcasters uh, to to invest in the song contest, to renew it, to uh, to 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 make it modern again, uh, that that has been a, a very valuable investment in the song contest. Um, the, the 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 sort of the the commitment of the EBU to uh, to renew it in terms of rules, to bring back the professional jury, uh, to uh, make the voting more exciting, so you're really on the edge of your chair all the way up to the last seconds. Um, yeah, so a lot has changed since. I, I can probably talk about this for hours, but <laughs> you probably have more questions as well. <laughs> I, I certainly, I certainly do. You talked about you know, we're talking about how the contest has changed. One of the things that we have seen change is different countries coming in, different countries leaving. From your position, this is more of a personal question rather than one as is with your hat on as the, the executive producer of Eurovision 2021. How disappointing is it that certain powerhouses of Eurovision aren't, aren't taking part anymore? I'm talking about Turkey, for example, who, of course, won the contest when you went to watch it as a fan in, in 2003. Yeah, that's, um, uh, that's a really interesting question. You know, ideally, um, being such a, a true Europe European tradition, uh, you would want to have uh, the family complete. At the same time, the song contest has always sort of been a, a, a breathing animal. Um, countries joining, countries leaving again, rejoining again, like Italy, uh, that sort of rediscovered the contest after, uh, after many years of absence. Um, so... I think it's, you know, if countries feel like they need to take a break, um, uh, that's, that's, you know, up to them. Uh, that's okay. 
but obviously you you ideally want to have the family complete and uh, and i hope that one day you know turkey will rejoin and, and luxembourg will rejoin um uh, kazakhstan will join <laughs> montenegro uh, you, you know you want to have all of them there uh even the little ones like uh, like andorra and, uh, and monaco i think i think they add a, a great sense of flavor and um you know on the eurovision stage there is a there is a sense of equality you know it doesn't matter if you're small san marino or or big germany um you stand um you you have the same opportunity you have the same three minutes to uh, to make it happen uh and and that's uh, uh that's inspiring you have long been working in various roles across eurovision's various family of events does that therefore mean that once eurovision 2021 is is over you will continue to be involved you will continue to work on on future contests because that's that's going to be a bit of a weird one personally for you because you know you you've done the exec producer job and then are you gonna be spending the years to come thinking well i would have done that or i would have done, <laughs> i would have done that differently for example yeah you know it's it's always easy to um uh to connect the dots looking back uh, but i could never uh in my wildest imagination uh believe that you know i would end up working at the ebu when i started a, a fan community website i never thought i would have the the chance to um, to supervise junior eurovision uh, and when i stepped down from my role as event supervisor in 2016 after stockholm uh, i i never thought that uh, that i would end up in this role either so you know, if that if that taught me one thing, it's that that there is just no point in in looking at the future, and uh, um, things will go as they go, and uh, we'll see what uh, uh, what life brings uh, uh, after twenty twenty one. When we told our our listeners that that you were going to be on the podcast, obviously we got many 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 questions. Uh, one of which was how much of the 2020 contest or the 2020 contest as was planned have you been able to take forward and use again in 2021 for example i i saw a post on your instagram from march 2020 where you were sitting listening to the theme music for for 2020 is stuff like that being able to be used in 2021 you know how much have you been able to take forward with with you yeah when um when we started anew, basically back in September, uh, we 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 essentially put everything out on the table and asked ourselves, do we do we want to keep this? Should we keep this? And uh, for a lot of things, the answer was yes, because we we believed in it and we wanted to um, we wanted to show it to people uh, all that we've we've worked on. But we also realized that we we had to rethink certain elements, uh, first of all, because it's different times. Uh, and with those times, it's only appropriate to, to tell a different story. Um, we changed the artwork because we wanted the artwork to tell the story of a new song contest, a different song contest. Um, uh, we indeed changed the theme music, um, so you'll never know what we planned for uh, for 2020. 
um, but we we saw an opportunity there to uh, uh, to to take it to a next level. I know I know you uh, can't obviously tell us what it sounds like, and it would be very difficult for you to tell us what it sounds like. But but what were the considerations you took into account when you thought actually this this isn't going to work? We're going to have to go with something new. Yeah, well, f- the the if if you're in a creative process and you create something, the longer you sort of look at it stare at it at some point you you will you will want to make changes to it because you get new ideas um if if i learned one thing which i sort of already knew but it if you you never really you never fully grasp it until you you end up hosting it yourself is that a year is a very short time uh, because once you're fully up to speed it's it's august september and then you essentially have until mid-march which you know is the head of delegation media and you have to show everything you've worked on uh, so you essentially have just you know you have about half a year to 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 do the entire creative process if you suddenly have an, an extra year uh you're going to want to use that time to to in, invest creative resources into it and and rethink and we feel that even though we are we're very proud of everything we did last year uh, we believe the puzzle sort of fits better this year and uh and we made a couple of changes some of them were necessary like the green room for example Uh, if you cannot have a standing audience you have to do something with that floor space Uh, and we did and if you change the green room you have to change your lighting plan and you have to change your camera plan and you have to rethink all sorts of things um uh, so yeah when it comes to the shows we we have a lot more announcements to make in the uh, in the in the weeks to come and uh, and we will so i can't tell you uh, much more uh, than this can you can you tell us can you tell us when we'll get our next announcement or can you not tell us that yet oh yeah i think the first things will come later this week and then in another two weeks three weeks we'll uh, we'll tell you more about what the shows are going to look like one of the one of the challenges was that we we didn't really know what may 2021 was going to look like what the vibe will be in europe you know are we still are we still under lockdowns and are we sort of increasingly frustrated with the situation as it is or are we going to celebrate our our great open up of, uh, of society because vaccinations are are speeding up um, and we want to we want to make a song contest that sort of fits with the spirit of uh, of the time that was the same challenge essentially as we had with uh, with china light last year now with your role of course you are responsible for the the look the feel the sound the organization of, of the contest how important is it for you that the show looks uniquely dutch because some criticism from from someone for example i was talking to about the contest last week has been you know eurovision 2019 looks similar to eurovision 2018 looks similar to eurovision 2017 so how important is it that the contest looks uniquely eurovision 2021 obviously a song contest always sort of looks a bit like its predecessors because you build upon a foundation but if you look at it over the over the long term you inevitably see an evolution uh, rather than a revolution, which um, which I think is one of the reasons that that after uh, 
65 years, it's still going strong. Um, but we also said, you know, let's try to, to rethink certain things. Um, you know, for example, the scoreboard, if you look at the scoreboard from last year and the year before and the year before, it, it sort of looks the same. And what we discovered is that it is that way for a reason. Um, uh, at the same time, we, we try to, you know, put creativity in those elements that we can and, uh, and get a bit more distinctive look and feel so that you will always recognize this as the 2021 scoreboard. This is just one example. Um, with the postcards, for example, we had to rethink, we had to be creative because we knew that it was going to be hard, if not impossible, to get all the artists to the Netherlands to record it here. So we found a solution for that uh, with the tiny houses. Um, so, yeah, I understand that criticism, um, but at the same time, it's one of the success ingredients of the song contest that, that it is an evolution rather than a revolution. We got a lot of questions from, from listeners about parts of the contest like the order in which the votes are revealed and the length of the show and the backing vocal rule for 2021. I'm just intrigued to know how much of that you have an influence over or how much of that is just the EBU say, this is how it's going to be this year. And you go, okay, fine. Yeah. What is important for, for fans listening is that the EBU hardly ever sort of imposes something on say, a host broadcaster or the participating broadcasters. And that's because the EBU is a member organization and, and it has structures like the reference group as sort of a board to, uh, to take the most important decisions. So it's a good collaboration. Uh, as executive producer, you are part of the reference group, um, but, but you're just one of the members. And, uh, and, and obviously you have a, um, a bit more prominent role as a host broadcaster, but... But in general, it's it's all based on good discussions between uh, between the participating broadcasters. Um, I've seen a lot of those changes happening over time. Uh, the most exciting one I think was the the change of the voting structure. So you know that you know you will only know the winner at the at the very end, which which uh, prevents all of Europe from going to bed early <laughs> because because you want to know the outcome. And uh, I think there was a there was a great, uh, a great improvement. And, uh, and as with every impro improvement or change, uh, you have to evaluate it after one year or a couple of years and then decide if you wanna, if you wanna bring it along. That's the, one of the brilliant things of the song contest is that yes, it has a, 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 a format based on a couple of elements that you know uh, will be there. You know, it's, it's artists representing their countries, it's one to eight, 10 and 12 points. You cannot vote for your own country. Um, it's three minute songs. That is sort of what people, people know what to expect, but it holds also has this built in flexibility that it can evolve um, uh, rather than a rule book set in stone like many TV formats. And for that reason, those TV formats hardly ever survive uh, uh, a few years. Last couple of questions from me. Uh, the first one is just a, a personal one that I'm I'm fascinated about. What will your role look like on the Saturday night itself? Is it kind of you've done everything you can and you get to enjoy the contest or are you very heavily involved in 
the show as it goes out? As you asked that question, uh, um, a memory popped up from 2007. And it was, uh, I think his name was Heike Seppala, which was the executive producer in Helsinki. And I remember it was about, I think, less than an hour before the start of the final. And I walked into his office and uh, he was sitting behind his desk with his feet up on the desk watching ice hockey. And I was a bit confused. I said, aren't you busy? Don't you have, you know, last minute things to do? Uh, and he, he, he told me two things. He said, one, uh, my work is done. There's nothing more I can do. Uh, if there was anything left to do, uh, I'd be in trouble by now. And two, there's one thing more important than Eurovision, and that's ice hockey. Uh, so I, I learned two important things there. One about the role of the executive producer and two about the, the Finnish attitude to, to ice hockey. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've kept telling the team for the last year, you know, uh, uh, my goal is to spend the last two weeks uh, with my feet up on the desk. It will probably not be that way, uh, but that should be the goal uh, because uh, if you if you achieve that, then then we've done uh, a, a good job. The team knows what to do. Uh, the machine works like clockwork, and I'm sure with the team we have um, that that will uh, that will that will work out. What message have you got for, for the fans listening who, as you've mentioned, and as we all know, you know, we've all had a very, very difficult time between the last contest and, and now, and, and many fans are holding so much hope that, that Eurovision 2021 is going to bring some joy into their life. So what message have you got to them that they will have something to look forward to in May and they will have something to enjoy? Well, first of all, and we've made that promise since last year, Eurovision 2021 will happen um, and it may be different uh, from what you are used to it may be different from the contest as we all embraced it in our hearts but i hope that the the fan community will will embrace every aspect of it that we manage to um, realize under these challenging circumstances I am I'm, I'm really uh, touched to see the support in the fan community um, f- after we announced that scenario A was no longer possible. You said it yourself. So many people said, you know, this is a, uh, this is a, a realistic decision. It's something that, um, that is inevitable. We understand. Uh, we're happy anyway that it's going to be scenario B. And many even said, oh, if it's if it ends up scenario C, so be it. But at least we'll have a song contest. And I hope that the fan community will be able to, to keep that spirit high. Uh, we're in this situation together. And let's together, whether we are present in Rotterdam or enjoying your vision from our homes, but let's, uh, let's embrace whatever we can do. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll remember it for all the good things and not for the fact that it's a Eurovision amidst the global pandemic. Sitsa, thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. And uh, uh, let's uh, let's try to catch up uh, sometime close before the contest. This is the Eurotrip. 
Now, don't know about you, James, but I'd quite like to hold the executive producer of Eurovision 2021 to what he said at the end there, and it would be fab to get him back on the podcast again before the contest in May. Yep, that's a promise in my book, Rob, and uh, I think he would love to come back as well because both of you two seem to have a thoroughly enjoyable time chatting earlier in a week. I've definitely had worse half hours, I'll be honest with you. And as you pointed out just before we started recording this episode, it was very nice of Sietzer to uh, get himself dressed up for me. I like to think he'd, he'd popped on the suit jacket and shirt just for me. Presumably it wasn't because he had something important to do involving Eurovision. Bound to have been for me. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure you, you'll agree. That was a really interesting interview. Fantastic to get that sort of an insight from Sietzer on the contest that we can expect this year, but also just looking back at his history with the Eurovision Song Contest as well. So I, for one, very, very excited for what we can expect in just a couple of months' time now. Absolutely. And hopefully you at home listening enjoyed it as much as we did uh, having these chats. And if you do enjoy when we speak to these names who you don't necessarily hear from all the time, do, as Rob said at the top of this week's episode, get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram or email us and, and let us know what you thought. Send us your comments. We always love to hear from you. We do at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or hello at EuroTripPodcast.com is the email address as well. Uh, but I promise for the final time this week, we will now say goodbye because I think you've had your money's worth from us this week. We brought you Melfest Monday on, you guessed it, Monday. We brought you Kano on the Eurotrip Podcast on Wednesday. And then this special insight into the Eurovision Song Contest today, which is Friday, if you are listening on the day of release. And I hope you have enjoyed all of them. Absolutely. So until we speak to you again on Monday for Melfest Monday, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. But from me, for the third and final time this week, it's goodbye. And from me, it's goodbye. This is the Euro Trip. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.